if I'd asked people what they'd wanted, they would have said a faster horse. You know, Henry Ford never actually said that. I'm Chris Woods, and this is the Industrial Research Podcast. In the last three episodes, we really focused on how to predict the future, and we did a bit of a deep dive into it. And it's time to resurface and have a look at the research roadmap process and how predicting the future fits in. And in fact, some of the tips and techniques from the world of futurology still apply here. The first phase of the research roadmap process is the exploratory research, deciding what it is we need to do, what vision of the future we want to create. When we've got that vision, that'll give us a list of questions that we need to investigate. Those questions feed into the second phase, which is all about how do we pr propose solutions to those problems. And that's the constructive research phase. Finally, we look at what experiments we need to run, which is the empirical research. Before we leave the first phase, though, I just want to go through it again. Just a brief recap. If we don't have a vision of the future within our own organization, we can use stuff from the world of futurology to help help us create one. Now, there are six key steps there that I just wanted to recap. The first one, well, it's all about trend prediction, and it starts with gathering data. Then we analyze that data and we do trend spotting. Then we cull the number of trends that we've come up with. We analyze them and work out the least likely ones and we remove them. Then we go set about doing trend timing. What's the ETA for a trend? And it's putting that trend on a TRL scale, technology readiness level scale, and asking what's missing for that trend to sweep over the world. With this in mind, we set about writing some scenarios which depict all the possible visions of the future we could come up with. And then we have to critique those visions, simplify them, make them better. And this process stops when effectively we either run out of money or we run out of time. But there's one final tip I'd like to give before we leave this world of future prediction. You know, the truth about any trend is that there is a core driver, a need, something pushing that trend along. And once you've identified that, you'll be able to make much more accurate predictions about what's going to happen next. And this is where we come back to Henry Ford and his misquote. If I'd asked people what they'd wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. Now, we now know he didn't say that. But this line is often used in articles to articulate how customers don't really know what they want. But this points to this core need. And if we think about Henry Ford, you know, what he did see was the need people had to have a cost-effective way of getting from point A to point B. If you go and look at Henry Ford's autobiography, he actually presents his own vision of the future. And in it he says, I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It'll be large enough for the family, but small enough for the individual to run and care for. It will be constructed of the best materials by the best men to be hired, after the simplest designs that modern engineering can devise. But it will be so low in price that no man making a good salary 
would be unable to own one and enjoy with his family the blessing of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. With any vision of the future, there are always a set of problems to be addressed. Things present, preventing that vision of the future from becoming a reality. Of course, for Ford, the challenge was to reduce the cost of the car. But we can break this problem down into two further questions. How do I reduce the bill of materials? And how can I reduce the time and effort to manufacture the car? And these two questions are really great because it lets us move on to the second phase of the research roadmap process, which is all about the solutions we can propose. It's actually really, really unusual that you ever find yourself in a situation where there isn't an existing solution to the problems that you've come up with. And the second phase is all about doing the hard research. Now, if you've ever spoken to someone who's done a PhD, or you've done one yourself, or you talk to a university professor or a PhD supervisor, or even if you work in Bell Labs or have been at Bell Labs, you'll know that when a project kicks off, one of the first things that gets done is a literature review. And the literature review means reading all the materials around the questions you're going to do research in, getting familiar with the existing body of knowledge and the current state of the art. It's a huge education. It's also one of the most boring bits of a PhD. Everybody wants to invent a new idea, a new concept, and this is reading. And for a PhD student, sometimes this could be reading for a year. But for us, we don't need to do a year doing it. The goal here for us is to look more deeply at the questions we need to address and just discover if there are any possible solutions available that might work or are similar to the problems that we need to answer. Now, I can give a couple of tips of places we can look for those possible solutions. And they are things like existing academic publications. Are there papers out about solutions to the same space? Are there startup companies that are producing solutions or technologies they're trying to sell that addresses the same problem? Are there solutions in adjacent industries? If you're lucky enough to have colleagues who work in other industries, talking to them about the problems you're trying to address is a really good way to discover it. Or are there existing products or services that we could leverage? Something from existing industry that we just haven't stumbled across yet. For me, in the software and IT industry, one of the things I like to look at is the open source community and the open source projects. There's a huge range of stuff going on in there. And also forums and message boards. I don't know anybody in software hasn't at least at once point in their career checked Stack Exchange for solutions. And sometimes you come up with some ideas. So it's worthwhile having a look. And this leads on to working out what answers we get. Now, broadly speaking, all the answers are going to fall into one of three different categories. They are, this problem's already been solved. There are more than one possible solution. And finally, there are no solutions at all. 
It is possible to come up with what you think is a question, but find out there's already a solution to it. We're all human, and often we're experts in a given domain. But when we encounter these visions of the future, they pull up questions across multiple domains. And so occasionally we'll come across a question and we'll think, hey, there's no possible solution for that. Is there only to talk to a colleague in another division who will tell you, oh, yeah, we solved that years ago. And I have a small story for you about that. And OK, I have mentioned a lot of sci-fi authors. I'm going to do it again. This one is Charlie Stross. Uh, he's a, a sci-fi author based up in Edinburgh. And he wrote a fantastic sci-fi book, which depicts a vision of the future. Well, OK, his vision of the future was 2018, but let's go with it. He depicts this vision of the future, and his book's called Halting State. And in Halting State, everybody walks around with basically Google Glass-like augmented reality devices strapped to their heads. But these work in a completely distributed way. They don't have a single cloud provider that's coordinates them, they just coordinate between themselves. They don't use a cellular network or a mobile phone network, they just talk between themselves. And just for, for giggles, I sat down trying to work out, well, how would you put this together? How would these Google Glass-like things talk to each other without a uh, centralised communication network? And I thought that was a really tough problem. They have to deal with devices being close together and, and being far apart and things disappearing off the edge of the network and poor reception. And wow, that's going to be really hard to deal with, right? Lots of questions about how you would address that. And then I went away and did some reading. And sure enough, there's a whole body of research just dedicated to this. You might have known it already. It's called mesh networking. And a huge whack of it has come out of um, US Army research on how devices can communicate to, with each other in the field. So often when we perceive an open question as being open, there may actually be really valid answers to it. We just haven't come across them yet. And that's OK. We're human. We'll get there in the end. But the, there are very few instances where we know the domain really well and we stumble across an absolutely perfect solution. In fact, it's far more likely that we'll find lots of potential candidate solutions. Now, often when we come across a problem, we will see similar problems that have happened either in our own industry in different areas or in other industries. And if that's occurred in the past, there'll be solutions to those problems that already exist in the market or in the open source community. And you've got to decide, well, my problem isn't a, a perfect match with the existing problems from my industry or other industries, but it's a similar problem. And these are similar solutions to these similar problems. Now, they're not going to fit my problem exactly, but they're going to be pretty close. And then the question becomes, well, which solution is the best one to take and do we need to modify it? And that really forms part of phase three, which is all about engineering, empirical research. And we'll cover that later. The 
there are some very rare situations where we come across no solution at all. Now, if you think back to when we first discussed the research roadmap process, we talked about Edison and his search for a light bulb and the, the filament to go inside it. Now, when he was searching for the most appropriate filament, there was already a huge range of different materials he could pick from. So it wasn't a need to create a brand new material. It was selecting the most appropriate material. And actually coming across a situation where there is no solution is kind of odd. It can happen, though. And when it does, we have three possible approaches to it. There is the traditional build it or buy it options. So first, we could build it. We could create the solution ourselves. Or we could outsource it, get somebody else to build it for us and pay them for it. We could buy it in. Or there's a final option here. We could just wait. You know, if you've done all your research and you really understand the industry and you understand these trends and where they're coming from, you'll often see that there are other players in the marketplace developing solutions and technology which may fit some of the problems that we come up with here. And in that case, depending on what the strategy of our organisation is, it might be more prudent just to wait for somebody else to invent the solution for us. Now, it all depends on what we do and what our companies do and what products and services they sell. It might be really strategically important that we own a solution so that we own this part of the future. And in that case, yes, we should totally build it. If we don't need to own it, but we need it to exist because we really want this vision of the future to occur, then yes, we totally should make sure that this happens and we can buy it in. But waiting. Waiting is when it's really important that this vision of the future happens. But we're not in a rush. And we can let somebody else do the hard work. We can try and speed this up, though. And that's where we look at collaborative research. And the whole topic of collaborative research I'll cover in a future episode. But we can work with other organisations to make these solutions work. And in this situation, we can partner with a technology developer and say, well, hey, we'll be a use case provider. We've got a really good use case for, a solu for this uh, solution that you're working on, and we can help you test it. And that's one way in which we can partner with another technology creator and help that technology come to market faster without actually having to develop it all ourselves. So waiting really is okay. But let's get back to Henry Ford. He had his two big questions. How do I reduce the bill of materials? And how do I reduce the time it takes to manufacture the car? Now, when we think about Henry Ford, often it's done in business schools and they talk about time and motion studies and how to accelerate the manufacturing process. But actually that came towards more towards the end of the sort of Model T era. era. What came first was this reduction in bill of materials. And what Henry Ford did was he, to simplify the design of the car. Strip out components you don't need, replace it with more simple components. If you can take two components and replace it with one, you should go and do that. 
And that, of course, had a knock-on effect by reducing the time it takes to manufacture the car. But it merely really affected this bill of materials. Less things to buy in, less things to store. And then he changed the building material. He switched from the existing version of steel to a version of steel called Vladmian steel, which came from France. And it was stronger and lighter than the steel he'd been using previously, which made his car itself quite a deal lighter and therefore more fuel efficient. And then, only after those two parts had been done, did he sit down with his team and start to look at this time and motion studies to reduce the manufacturing time for the car. And I know what you're thinking. That's interesting and all, but you know, a Model T Ford from 1901 is light years away from the software industry that I work in. But there's a common thread, and that's this push for simplification. The simplification of design for Henry Ford followed through to the simplification of the manufacturing process. And likewise in IT, even in software, my degree was in software engineering. And the one thing you want to do as a software engineering graduate is, obviously, write software. And it's really ironic that that's actually one of the most expensive things to do. Every line of code that I write, or you write as a software developer, has to be maintained. It has a cost to it. It has to be tested and bug-tracked and supported in a product going forward. In some ways, it can become like a weight around the development team's neck when they carry this tech burden, this technology debt forward. Everything has to be updated and refreshed and revised. And it's even the same on the electronic side. Steve Wozniak helped found Apple. He was the co-founder. And he has a great autobiography, and I know I've lost listed a lot of books so far in this mini-series, but if you get one, get I Was, because it's good, and his um, enthusiasm for electronics and computing just flows through the book, and it's a, a mesmerising read, um, and I flew through it in no time at all. So his, uh, his autobiography is called I Was, and it's, it's good, but in it, he really talks about his passion for electronics and for chips and for reducing the chip count on the Apple One and the Apple Two. And he starts to talk about how he was designing the PCBs and picking out different chips for things. And new chips would be released and he would find a situation where one brand new chip that's just come, out, come onto the market would do the job of two existing chips they had in his PCB design. So we'd take it out and replace it. And in doing so, he's making the computer easier to manufacture, but also a bit more reliable. So this theme of simplicity really does run through, even today, through electronics and software. If we can simplify the software that we write and reduce the number of lines of code that we have to write, it reduces the technical debt. And then we can do the same on the hardware side with the chip choices. And I have come to the end of this episode. We really need to move on to phase three. But that's going to have to wait till next time. Before I go, though, 
I've got a tiny bit of homework for you. And keeping on with this theme of simplicity, can you see something in your organization that could be simplified? A process, a product, or maybe you've interacted with somebody or another company, or you've purchased a product from somebody else and you can see how you would do that design more simply. You know, Steve Jobs used to quip that you could design anything at all, even a service or a shop, and the Apple stores came out of that ethos. I wonder, even we, when we interact with online stores, since we're all at home with COVID, or we do get out and we go to a supermarket, are there ways and means we could simplify that interaction, simplify that process? Just food for thought. If you come up with anything, I'd love to know. You can always find me on Twitter, as at MC Woods, or if you'd like to, you can even find me on LinkedIn. If you check the show notes, there'll be a link to this blog post, which which covers all of this um, episode in a lot more detail. And there will be a link to my um, LinkedIn profile as well. If you like this episode and this mini series on industrial research and the processes behind it, please subscribe. You'll find it in Apple iTunes and Spotify and Google and a lot of other places too. If you can't find it, let me know because I've forgotten to add it to a podcast catcher somewhere. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, stay at home. Hope everybody's safe and well. And I look forward to speaking to you next time. The music used is an excerpt from Bust This, Bust That by Professor Cleek and is used under Creative Commons.